2: This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanschel. The pandemic has certainly magnified health disparities in the U.S. Today, we'll look at cancer disparities that persist in communities of color. We'll talk about why, including barriers to screening and early detection. And later we'll find out how local hospitals and nonprofits are working to address these gaps. We wanna hear from you too. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. First, a recent study in the Journal of the American Medical Association found African-American women with non-metastatic triple negative breast cancer were more likely to die of their disease than their white counterparts. African-American patients also were less likely to receive standard treatments, which partially explained their increased mortality risk. Now with all the attention on breast cancer awareness, why is this still happening? Let's start with a personal story. Joining me on the phone now is Shelly Hicks. She's a breast cancer survivor and she's an advocate for Sisters Journey, a breast cancer support group in New Haven for black women. Shelly, welcome to our show. Hi Lucy, great to be with
3: you this morning.
2: Now, I mentioned that you're a survivor. We're so glad that you're here with us to tell us your story. Can you talk about when you were diagnosed, what was your experience at the doctor's office?
3: Sure. Um, I was diagnosed at age 34 with early stage breast cancer. And um, just to back up a little, my mom was diagnosed and, and thankfully is a survivor, but she was diagnosed three years prior. And so I had become very aware of my body and its changes and I had begun to schedule or or actually conduct self-exams myself. And so I found a lump and I brought it to my gynecologist's attention. And she told me, you know, you're pretty young. Why don't we watch it for a year and see how it progresses? And over the course of a year, I noticed that it got larger and it got harder. And I brought it to her attention at the next visit. And she, given my history, still said, you know, I truly don't think it's anything. Um, I think that exposing yourself to a mammogram may be a little more um, troublesome than um, what you may have found right now. So I just wanted to uh, talk a little
2: bit about what you shared. So you, were, sure. you first saw, you noticed this lump um, in your early 30s and given your family history, the doctor still
3: told you to just wait and see? She did. Yeah, she did. She said, you know, I I don't think it's anything. Why don't we just wait and see? And I think that um, maybe it was an unconscious bias or or conscious bias, but I I believe it was unconscious. Uh, You know, looking at my the way that I look, looking at my age, I look much younger and I am a black woman. um, And I think that black women come across this more often than not. And so uh,
2: a year later, she was still telling you, well, maybe you shouldn't get a mammogram uh, with concerns about radiation. So what made you still think, you know, there's something
3: wrong, I need to check this out? Like I said, I had become really aware of my body and sensitive to the changes. and So I knew that it was something. I had this just innate feeling, um, a, a voice of God. I just, I knew that something was off. And so I called Milo uh, myself, Smilo Cancer Center here in New Haven and scheduled a mammogram.
2: So can you walk us through that process? Cause I know, you know, some, I know before I ever had my first mammogram, I was kind of, you know, dreading it, right? <laughs> and so were you right, concerned yeah. at all about, you know, what it was going to be like and, you know, just the process?
3: i I really wasn't up until, about an hour before the mammogram was scheduled, I was just hoping to get some sort of confirmation that this doctor was right. And it was nothing. And I didn't have anything to worry about. And right before I walked in, um, I, I felt this feeling of dread, but everyone, um, at Smilo cancer center was really, really caring and and welcoming. Um, I did, going to the mammogram and the radiologist or the uh, the technician there, she said to me, you know, why are you doing this? You're so young. And I was thinking to myself, is this a sign? Should I not be doing this? Because this is the second time that I'm hearing this. And um, as we had gone through the mammogram and she noticed uh, there was some abnormal abnormalities on the um, the mammogram, she called in the doctor. And the doctor asked um, if I would be able to stay to have an ultrasound completed. And then I had a subsequent uh, biopsy as well.
2: And so can you tell us uh, when they gave you a call back uh, after the results came in, uh, what did they say?
3: It was um, almost a week later. And my gynecologist was actually the person that called. I was away traveling for work in Atlanta and I got the phone call from her, and she asked if Smilo had called me with my results. And I said, "No, I haven't heard from anyone yet." And she said, "I, I am very sorry to to say you do have cancer. You do have breast cancer, and Smilo um, will be in touch with next steps."
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And um, that yeah. was the extent of that conversation.
2: Mm-hmm. And so that's a life-changing conversation. Uh, how did you, uh, you know, get support? And um, obviously you're a survivor today, and that's great news. But when you look back, um, you know, talk about the support that you needed at that moment and, and how you got uh, through the treatment.
3: Um, this, I... I... I felt support from all around, from, um, my family, from the, the medical team that I worked with at Smilo and that exact moment when I got the phone call, um, I was in Atlanta, Georgia and one of my best friends happens to live in Atlanta, Georgia. And so I was able to, to spend some time with her and kind of process the, the news that I had just gotten. So I was thankful that I wasn't completely alone. Um, when I got back it was there wasn't a lot of time for me mentally to emotionally process that news it was really just kind of go time for me I know that I knew that I needed to to figure out you know what my game plan was going to be how I was going to respond to whatever treatment that they were going to suggest um, and how I was going to get past it because I am a mom I was I had a ten year old son at the time um and, it, you know, it was a lot. It was a, a lot for me to deal with, but I am grateful for the support that I felt from my entire
2: community, my entire village. Mm-hmm. Now, you also got support, I believe, through Sisters Journey in New Haven. Tell us about this group.
3: Sisters Journey is an amazing organization. They um, are a support group for breast cancer survivors and and also for, you know, their extended community. So my grandmother is a survivor, as I said, my mother is a survivor and so they were both already a part of Sister's Journey. And when I received my diagnosis, um, from that moment, they jumped in and supported me in ways, um, as they do a survivor instead of, you know, their caregiving support group or caregiving community. So they, they came in and they were very, very, uh, supportive. They were very, Helpful in just making sure that I had everything that I needed and that my family had everything that they needed to support me um, uh, closer
2: And so this is a, a support group for black women in the New Haven area who've been diagnosed with uh, with breast cancer when you're talking with them um, and um, As an advocate, you know were there similar stories of feeling where when they realized something was wrong or they felt like something was wrong that they didn't feel like they were being heard?
3: Yes, there are. There are plenty of stories, plenty of stories where women say they do not feel that they're heard. Um, And there are also contrasting stories where there are women that say, you know, from the very beginning I knew something was wrong and my doctor heard me and my doctor acted on it. Um, But, you know, Storytelling is the best way that we can advocate for ourselves and for our community, and uh, we get plenty of stories uh, that run the gamut on, from Sister's Journey.
2: You're hearing uh, with me here on Where We Live, on the phone, Shelly Hicks, a breast cancer survivor. She's an advocate for Sister's Journey, a breast cancer support group in New Haven for black women. It, it was really inspiring to go to the Sister's Journey website, uh, sistersjourney.org, and to see all these survivor stories, uh, pictures of these these beautiful women, uh, Shelley, that um, have, uh, you know, they got a diagnosis and they beat it. And talk yes. about how that's empowering for, for other women who are horrendous in the middle of this right now.
3: There are so many women uh, after I shared my story more publicly that um, said to me, you know, I was always afraid to get a mammogram. I was always afraid of the pain. I was always afraid of the radiation or I just could not mentally prepare myself to go because I just didn't want to know. I'd rather not know. And after I shared my story, so many women decided to get their first mammogram, and these are women that were over 40, and most of them said, you know, I'm so glad I did. It was not that bad uh, and did not have cancer and, and have not had, you know, a history with cancer. And there are some that have come back and said, I am so glad that you shared your story. I am so glad that I went to get this mammogram. I do have cancer and I am dealing with it. And can you tell me more about your treatment plan or can you tell me more about your journey? And uh, and we go from there.
2: Again, you're listening to Where We Live. I wanted to get another perspective on this conversation about uh, cancer disparities that continue to persist in communities of color. Uh, joining us on the phone is Dr. Kristen Zarfoss. She's a senior breast surgeon and medical director of the Comprehensive Women's Health Center at St. Francis Hospital. Dr. Zarfoss, welcome to the show.
4: Good morning, Lucy. Thank you so much for um, uh, having Shelly on. She, Her story, her message is so important. And thank you for heightening awareness in Connecticut of these issues. Mm.
2: Well thank you again for your time today. I want you to respond to what Shelley shared. You know again, she was thirty four and and the first time she felt a lump in her breast, but her her doctor said, "Well, let's wait and see." And what's your response to that? And given what you know about uh, the prevalence of breast cancer in, in black women and, and and how early they can be diagnosed?
4: well, I think um, I think what it reflects is that young black women are invisible. Until they present with uh, many times a far more advanced stage of breast cancer than Shelley, because Shelley was persistent, she found her cancer uh, relatively early, and she's doing very well. But it is it's a reflection that young black women uh, are just ignored as Shelley was, or invisible. Now, um, the statistics bear out that thirty percent Of black women will develop breast cancer before the age of 50 compared to a third of white women. And yet the standards for starting screening mammography are um, at, at best 40, 45, or even 50 based on the U.S. Preventive Task Force recommendation, starting mammograms at 50. And so you can see, if you look at the statistics, I'm not exaggerating when I say that young black women are ignored by Mm -hmm. these screening mammogram recommendations.
2: And so we also heard from Shelley that um, the doctor said that, well, you're so young, and also concerns about uh, you know, getting a mammogram. So you know, walk us through that um, for listeners who, who you know, are also concerned about, you know, should I get a mammogram? Am I too young? What about the radiation?
4: Yes, these are great questions. So women like Shelly who are in tune with their body or have a strong family history and or have a strong family history should go to the provider if they find a lump regardless of ethnicity, 15% of breast cancers are not apparent on mammogram or on ultrasound. So when a woman finds a change in her breast on self-exam, a new symptom, she should see her physician, nurse practitioner, physician's assistant, and if there's no recommendation for taking in another step, she should pursue a second opinion because we know that uh, lumps may be just not apparent on those studies. doesn't mean that a physician reading the mammogram doesn't see it. It's because of the texture. So we need to empower women, and Shelly gives such a great message about know your body, be in tune with it, be persistent if you find something that you want more answers. As far as radiation, we've been doing mammography since the 1990s, and for that reason there's a 40% decrease in the death rate of uh, women from breast cancer because of screening mammography. And the comforting fact is that since we've been doing mammography for so long, we know that the low dose of radiation that's received is not cumulative to increase a woman's risk of developing breast cancer.
2: You know, uh, we're still in this pandemic, and we've heard from uh, providers that, you know, people haven't been getting to these preventative screenings uh, like they should. And so what have you seen during this pandemic, Dr. Zarfoss?
4: Well, the St. Francis uh, Comprehensive Women's Center Breast Radiology Department remained open during COVID, and so didn't the breast providers, the physician's assistants and physicians. We saw patients throughout COVID, albeit a smaller number. And then there was a flood of patients when women started having their mammograms again after COVID. Make no mistake, women were being cautious about during COVID, and we respect them for that. But once um, the numbers of COVID decreased with the first surge and women started uh, coming in because they had found a lump and coming in for their screening mammograms, we saw a lot more cancers. And there's data about that. Um, I want to commend every woman who has had a mammogram or did self-examine and saw their physician during this time because it takes courage because of uh, the COVID restrictions. We, Because we're based in Hartford, which is one of the cities with the highest population of black women, we at the St. Francis Comprehensive Women's Center see a lot of young women with breast cancer. And I have been working with Sisters Journey and other groups around the state now for almost a decade on heightening awareness. There are a lot of issues behind why um, there's a higher mortality rate uh, from breast cancer in black women, three times increased mortality in young black women. Um, A a lot of determinants, but let's get down to the basics. There are a lot of determinants that society has to work on with the disparities we've seen of, of people of color with COVID, but also with breast cancer. But, if If cancer occurs in black women younger, it's common sense, and there are plenty of papers now supporting the studies that we should be doing mammography and screening in young black women earlier than the standards from the American Cancer Society or the US. Preventive Task Force. There well, are that... precedents in other cancers for mm-hmm. screening uh, measures earlier than the standards. And why shouldn't young black women have those same rights?
2: Well, what about genetic testing? Uh, When we think about the Ashkenazi Jews who are predisposed to the BRCA gene, um, we see uh, studies that show um, black men of Caribbean descent uh, have, uh, um, you know, they should be be screened for prostate cancer earlier. I mean, talk through uh, genetic testing. Uh, Should that be pushed more for at-risk people of color?
4: I think we' need to look at each woman and her individual risk factors. So what you have just cited are two precedents where we look at populations that have a higher risk, such as in Jewish women of Ashkenazic descent, then um, insurance coverage will cover genetic testing and unlike someone who does not have an increase of a population of women who don't have an increased risk, as with PSA prostate screening in young black men particularly of Caribbean descent. They have a higher risk, so PSAs, the blood tests, are covered. Uh, in other words, these screening modalities are available. To answer your question directly about genetic testing, each woman, regardless of ethnicity, should be looked at with her family history if she develops breast cancer or at what age she develops breast cancer to see if she and her family could benefit from genetic testing. But what we're talking about here is looking at the facts about a certain group's increased risk of developing any type of cancer and applying screening guidelines based on those risks. And thus, why I think Shelley might agree with me, Um, if young black women develop breast cancer younger, shouldn't we be screening them earlier?
2: Right, Shelley's still with us. Shelley Hicks, again, uh, who's a breast cancer survivor. You know, uh, I wanted you to respond to what
3: Dr. Zarfoss shared. Uh, I absolutely agree, Um, and I would like to just say that I also had genetic testing done. Um, I did, my mother did, uh, one of my cousins did as well, and as of right now, there isn't a gene that they have found um, that has connected the breast cancer that I had to my mom or my grandmother. Um, We were all raised in different parts of the country, and so I do not have an answer to why I have breast cancer. But as of right now, I don't believe it's um, connected to any sort of genetics or or the
2: like. Okay. Uh, before we, uh, before we head to break, you know, there've been, you've mentioned that Dr. Zarfoss, there have been a lot of studies and, you know, Given what has been found, uh, earlier screening for for uh, in communities of color is a no-brainer. And, and I'm wondering if you can talk further about what researchers have found in terms of that experience that a, a person of color is having in the doctor office that may make them um ha- make uh, have a different choice about a proceeding with a particular treatment versus the, uh, you know white women.
4: Well, uh, there is no question that black women are not represented in clinical trials as frequently as um, oh, white women. Uh, clinical trials give us the information, as we know with a vaccine. Clinical trials have shown us so many advances in breast cancer treatments, but, but women of color are underrepresented there is um, some data a paper that looks at a gap between now Shelley described she had her mammogram and there was a gap in time before she was contacted that that gap is greater for women of color why is that is that unavailability by telephone or we don't there are a lot of social determinants here that are making a difference and we have to work on those social determinants not just in breast cancer but in COVID and all health issues that is that is something that must be done. But in the meantime, in a parallel way, we can inform providers, inform women in a, in a non-toxic way, an empowering way, to have young black women have screening mammography earlier.
2: Here, and Dr. Kristen Zarfoss here on Where We Live, senior breast surgeon and medical director of the Comprehensive Women's Health Center at Saint Francis Hospital. She's going to stay with us, but I want to thank Shelley Hicks for joining us today, a breast cancer survivor and also an advocate for Sisters Journey, which is a breast cancer support group in New Haven for Black women. You can learn more at sistersjourney.org. Shelley, thank you so much.
3: Thank you so much, Lucy. Thank you, Dr. Zarfoss. Thank you, Shelley.
2: This is where we live. You can join us. Coming up after the break, we find out more about how hospitals and some nonprofits are working to reduce these gaps in care for high-risk residents.
4: So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed. And in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to, to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery.
1: For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health.
2: This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nolpeth Black women in America have the highest mortality rate from breast cancer than other women. So how can the medical community help? Researchers at Ohio State say national screening mammography guidelines still do not reflect the high risk status of black women. That's something that my guest on the phone has also shared. She's Dr. Kristen Zarfoss, senior breast surgeon and medical director of the Comprehensive Women's Health Center at St. Francis Hospital. So uh, Dr. Zarfoss, uh, what's the process to get all these organizations on the same page so that doctors give their patients the right guidance for testing based on the risk factors?
4: Well, that's, that's the crux of the matter. Lucy, thank you for, for boiling right down to where we need to be. You know, uh, I, there are, uh, physicians from 14 different institutions around this country who, uh, through their, uh, co-editing papers that support this that are as passionate as Shelley is, as you are to bringing this to attention, and certainly as we are at St. Francis and Trinity Health Center has uh opened the door to educating um, physicians in their 92 uh hospitals in 22 states around the country but that that's just a small uh part of what we need to do you know thanks to the Biden administration uh Dr. Nunez Smith from uh uh, Yale, mm-hmm. is representing inequities in health care uh, on COVID and other health issues at the federal level. And so, as you quoted the Ohio State um, article, uh, which is entitled, A Call to Action, We Need to Organize, to sit down at the table with those who make the guidelines to to. Look at the data. This is all evidence-based. These numbers that I have shared with you, we have known since the 1970s, were published in the journal Cancer in 2002. So this is not new news. But what COVID has done in heightening our awareness, pulling the veil back from what we have refused to see um, as a nation on disparities and in inequities in health care for people of color we cannot ignore it any longer. And Dr. Nunez Smith is working on this at the federal level. All of us need to stand up and say, no longer ignore these young black women. Mm-hmm.
2: At the same time, Dr. I you know I'm sure for women who are listening, and as we're talking, you know, it, it really is unfair that the onus is on Women to be proactive in some way when we've got so much on our plate There's so much happening and we've got to remember, you know, make sure you get these preventive, you know, prevention measures yes. uh, You know go get your mammogram and you know, that's just that's a real failure of our healthcare system, right? Like it's it on is. the individual
4: <laughs> It is there is without question and you know, it's just like the issue that they like to say obesity is a risk factor for breast cancer and all ethnicities and they, they say that in young and black women of all ages, excuse me. No woman chooses to be obese. Don't blame the woman for her cancer. Help her to understand early detection. Help her with her health. I agree with you, Lucy. You know, what is a more critical decade in your life than your 30s and 40s as a woman? You're raising children. You may be the only breadwinner. Maybe you're going back to school. It is a critical decade. Um, I am far older than that, but, I, you know, your 30s and 40s are so critical. We need to help women. Uh, we, as healthcare professionals, need to educate our colleagues now, today, and we need to strive to talk to the payers Particularly since we're the insurance capital uh, of the uh, of the world, we need to talk to the educators at the medical schools, the physicians' assistant schools, the nurse practitioner schools. We need to get out into the community, and we've just hired a new. We're working on hiring a new outreach worker at our breast center for breast health. And I want to emphasize breast health. We don't want it to be a toxic message that you're young and you're going to develop breast cancer. We want the message to empower women on taking care of their health. And having a mammogram or doing self-exam and being proactive to go to their physician is about women's health of all ethnicities, but particularly in young black
3: women.
2: Uh, We're going to be going to a reporter from Connecticut Health investigative team to talk about some other disparities in our community and how some local hospitals and advocacy groups are working to close these gaps. But I I just wanted to go uh, ask you, Dr. Zarfas, for women who are fearful of that first mammogram, can you just give us a little advice on, you know, again, the process and to maybe, you know, distill that fear for them, dispel it? Yes.
4: Well, I think... We have to look at it as peace of mind. And so a, a, a brief 10, 15-minute mammogram where there's a little compression of your breast, a little a mild discomfort for some women, a little more discomfort for others, but a brief period can give you 364 and a half days of the year peace of mind that you're taking care of yourself, that you need not worry. You know, in my experience with our team at St. Francis, the nurses I work with, Um, It's the unknown that's most fearful to all of us, and so rather than struggling with the unknown, do I have a breast problem or not, take that measure, minimal discomfort, mild discomfort, for 10 or 15 minutes to give you 364 days of the year of peace of mind.
2: Uh, those are great uh, words for all of us. And I know after the show, I'm going to call, I'm going <laughs> to set mine up. Thank you, right. Dr. Zarfas, <laughs> for That's that right. reminder. Uh, Elizabeth Hubeck has, has been waiting uh, on Zoom. Uh, we want to talk with you about your recent story for uh, the Connecticut Health Investigative Team, because you're also looking at other uh, disparities in communities of color. Let's talk about colorectal cancer screening, Elizabeth. What did you find?
1: Hi, Lucy. Thanks for having me today. Um, absolutely here in Connecticut, um, there are definitely, um, disparities, um, in colorectal cancer when it comes to both screening and, um, just the, the rates, um, in Connecticut, in Connecticut, um, Hispanic men have the highest rates of colorectal cancer. Um, and, um, and then black men, um, closely follow. And um, the rates are slightly lower for women, but again, Hispanic women's rates are higher than um, than those of white women, and um, and also um, they they're lagging in in screening as well, getting those um, those regular routine screenings that um, can really you know be be life saving.
2: So in your story, just to um, reiterate, you know, this should uh, grab everyone's attention. Fewer than 80 percent of Connecticut residents who are age eligible for colorectal cancer screenings are up to date on them. Fewer than 80 percent. You're talking about disparities also between the black and Hispanic uh, community. Um, So talk about the barriers. Why is this, Elizabeth?
1: Sure. Sure. Well, I, I spend um, quite a bit of time talking to folks at Project Access of New Haven, which is a, um, a nonprofit that uses a really unique model of, um, and it's actually a research-based um, national um, model um, in which they um, use patient navigators. And these are folks who um, work directly with patients to, um, to help them get through these barriers, which can be as varied as um, uh, simple distrust of of screening and doctor visits, to translation um, services that they may need, um, transportation, um, and you know childcare—all the things that that prevent folks from getting to those um, those visits.
2: Uh, you profiled a 71-year-old uh, New Haven resident, a native of Peru. Uh tell us a little bit about him and how he got to his screening.
1: Right. Um, that's a, a um great example. Um, Mr. Estrada is um a 71 year old native of Peru, and he um he did find his way to um project access and um you know, once he was um, educated on the the family history link, um, his father had died of colorectal cancer at 65 years old. Um, he didn't want to, you know, uh, follow in his footsteps, and um, so um, the um, the folks at Project Access made sure that he um, that he got everything that he needed in terms of the um, everything from the, the prep, um, the preparation that needs to go, um, into that, um, the day before the colonoscopy, um, made sure that was, um, taken care of, um, paid for, and that he, um, that he got that colonoscopy. And, um, since 2018, he's been getting these routinely and, um, you know, it, um, he's, it's been, Life-saving for him. He, they found um, several polyps on these screenings that they were able to um, surgically remove um, at the same time. So that's been, it's been great for him.
2: Well, Dr. Zarfoss is still with us. What's your take on the patient navigator model from this nonprofit, Project Access? I think
4: it's a wonderful model. Patient navigators are so important. We have three nurse navigators who help each of our patients develop uh, who have uh, breast cancer, navigators from nonprofits. We also have a colorectal outreach worker uh, program at St. Francis. But what we have just heard is phenomenal. Let us not forget all of us, Chadwick Bozeman, the young brilliant black actor who died very young from colon cancer let us not forget him um you know katie couric had colonoscopies in the past on tv but let us not forget that breast uh cancer but colon cancer is a big issue for people of color and what i've just heard is going on is phenomenal and i congratulate you for what you're doing in your program
2: And uh, Elizabeth, uh, another person that you spoke with uh, that heads this new program at Smilo Cancer Hospital, uh, again, uh, talking about genetic testing for individuals, can you tell us briefly about him?
1: Certainly. um, Dr. Xavier Lohr, he directs the cancer screening and prevention, um, which is part of a new program called Community Engagement and Health Equity at the Smilo Cancer Hospital. Um, And he is, um, he's just a real champion for making sure that, you know, every patient, regardless of race and ethnicity, gets um, not only important screenings, but also genetic testing. Um, So um, he talks, um, he shared some information with me um, about referral bias, which is um, documented in multiple studies, uh, you know, which happens when certain patients, often on the basis of Race or sex are excluded from um, things such as clinical trials, genetic testing, and um, he has worked with um, the folks in his in the informatics system to make sure that um, that everyone who has whose tumors have presented um, well, tumors that are taken after colonoscopies um, are um, are that are. That show signs of possible um, um, need for genetic testing are, are actually um, that the patients get that referral for the genetic testing. So it's um, it's race blind, it's um, you know color blind, and um, he said that that using this um, this method has increased the um, referrals for genetic testing in their healthcare system from 40 to 80 percent. So that's um, that's pretty huge.
2: Dr. Zarvas, so again, that, that does sound like some good outcomes here.
1: Yes,
4: it is. It is. Um, I had colon cancer at the age of 53, and so I, um, I, I can't not tell you how am enthusiastic about what Elizabeth is describing to us because uh, we're seeing colon cancer in younger and younger uh, people of all ethnicities, but particularly in people of color. And there's a lot more stigma. Lucy, you asked about a mammogram, Mm-hmm. Uh, and thank you for asking that question. There's a lot more stigma about having a colonoscopy and detoxifying all the the rumors around that is very important. So what's being done in New Haven through Smilo uh, is just phenomenal.
2: Well, that sounds like a whole other show that we need to have, Dr. Zarifas, uh, given what you've shared about younger people uh, coming down with uh, um, colon and colorectal cancer. But we thank you so much for your expertise and your words of wisdom for our listeners today.
4: Thank you. Thanks for um, this opportunity.
2: Again, Dr. Kristen Zarfoss is Senior Breast Surgeon and Medical Director of the Comprehensive Women's Health Center at St. Francis Hospital. And Elizabeth Hubeck, thank you, reporter at the Connecticut Health Investigative Team, will tweet out a link to her story uh, at WNPR's at where we live. Thank you, Elizabeth.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Lucy. Have a great weekend. This is Where We Live,
2: I'm Lucy nalpith Coming up, we talk to a local nonprofit about how it's helping residents who are at risk for chronic disease. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. is where we live. I'm Lucien Alpethanschel. Now we've been talking about health disparities among communities of color. How are local nonprofits working to help high risk residents? Gather New Haven manages numerous community gardens, but also has programs to help people who are at risk of chronic disease. Joining us now on Zoom is Sochi Garcia, who is the assistant program manager of the farm-based wellness program. She works specifically with youth too. Uh, Sochi, welcome to our show.
0: Hi, thank you for having me here.
2: So just to give some background for our listeners, Gather New Haven formed in early 2020 after New Haven Farms and New Haven Land Trust merged. You organize or manage about seven farms, more than 50 community gardens, but we want to talk to you to find out about the programs that promote public health, um, including the farm-based wellness program. What can you tell us about the people that you serve?
0: Yes, the people that come to our program are typically referred from New Haven clinics Most of our patients have historically come from the Fairhaven Community Health Center, which is where the residents are primarily of Hispanic or Spanish speaking descent. And when they come to us, it's usually either through a doctor referral or through word of mouth. Usually our participants have predisposed to high risk health oriented diseases like diabetes, high cholesterol or high blood pressure. What we, our main goal is to intervene and prevent some of these diseases into becoming more or less permanent. And our main goal really is to transform their lives in a sustainable way. We give them various lessons about healthy cooking, exercises, mindfulness activities, just anything that they're very comfortable into adapting into their own lives because overall, this is more for them than it is for us. So we're just a resource for them and the families that we serve at our program.
2: So tell me more about how you connect with these uh, residents. Uh, it sounds like there's a lot of good outcomes, but in terms of just getting people interested to participate, um, just walk us through that, Sochi.
0: Yeah, during recruitment season, uh, we try to have a more conversation about what the the participants perceive their lifestyle we never want to come in thinking that they're unhealthy or unwilling to do any healthful changes instead we sit back and try to hear them and usually they're very vulnerable to us you'd be surprised at how much they the world is soon. i think a lot of it has to do with if you speak spanish they're more willing to open because then the language barrier is removed and they discuss about how they're worried about their children or themselves, but they don't have a basis as to where to start. And so usually I reassure them about the different activities that we offer, as well as the free vegetables that we provide to them on a weekly basis and um, other related things like that. We wanna reassure them as much as we can, because oftentimes, what when people are introduced to something new especially if it's a program that is a commitment between 10 to 16 weeks it can feel a little overwhelming it's like is it right for them and what we want to do is just make sure that they can connect to some aspect of the program and go from there and the conversation doesn't just stop at their application it's an ongoing conversation both in program and after program during off season time
2: So you're helping people below the federal poverty line. They're accessing affordable farm grown food. So talk about that, the typical planting or harvesting day for for your participants.
0: Yes, I primarily work with children because that's my um, specialty this season. And one of my goals is to have them have a very immersed experience with urban farming. Usually children are very disconnected with where things come from. And our survival essentially does start from the ground up. And for them to have the whole cycle of what farming is, they start out usually with weeding the beds or clearing it out, adding compost. And I I give them a step-by-step guide. I obviously don't expect them to come with any urban farming experience. (laughs) And I want it to be very encouraging a lot of, of my youth participants are very intimidated by seeing things new or new textures or smells. And I just want them to feel comfortable. And if they're not, I'm like, if you don't want to do say shoveling dirt or compost, you may plant the seeds on the, on the ground. And they're very happy, especially when it comes to something that they're going to grow and something is going to be produced months later. And so recently we had carrot seeds and they're extremely tiny. If anyone's ever seen them, they're like, as thin as your eyelash and very small. And they just couldn't believe like a giant vegetable can come out of the ground from something so little. And I try to also tell them how, when you have a seed in your hand, think of it like a baby, it's very fragile, but very resilient. And so if you're gonna place this on the ground, have in mind, it's like, this is what you wanna care for in the long term. So I try to have a a narrative alongside with what the activity that they're doing, that way they can create a a deep layer connection with farming and also with the food that they're evidently going to eat later in the season, and also uh, a story to share with their parents too, because this is an intergenerational program that's just something exclusive based Mm -hmm. on their age.
2: And that was my next question to you, Sochi, about how children can help influence uh, uh, their parents in in healthy eating and even eating together. There's nothing like uh, going into the garden and harvesting something that you've grown. It's it's a great feeling.
0: Yes, I. Um, what I do with the children is to have them taste test or feel, I try to engage all of their senses as much as I can because usually food is mostly about taste, sometimes smell, but it's only, it's a, a mouthful experience. And so if you have children who are very unfamiliar with kale or even a cucumber, believe it or not, they may feel an aversion to something that's so new. And so I'm like, here, just taste it. I don't force them or anything. I'm like, if they can just see it and how it's picked from the vine or from the ground, they have almost like this instinct to go ahead and go forward with just taking a bite. And usually I have a pretty positive response. And I've had had some parents come up to me and say, Hey, my child never liked kale or didn't even know that was a word, but now they're actually asking me to buy it at the grocery store. And that makes me really happy because it just takes one experience for them to actually start making a life-changing decision.
2: Well, that's good to hear. And that, you know, when we think about measuring outcomes, that's uh, one outcome. But when we think about residents who might be high risk or maybe have uh, diabetes, how do you encourage testing blood glucose levels or or helping with diet for people that that have diabetes, Sochi?
0: So with the children is a little different. I try not to be at too structured with them because sometimes I've noticed with children, it's like when, when the environment is a little too similar to school, they uh, sway away from that. What I do more as a, an assessment for them is what are the vegetables that you've eaten throughout the week? Is there anything new that you've incorporated? But when, and I'm going to allude this more to the adults where there is a lot more structure for them, they keep eating log journals. We also measure their uh, weight on a weekly basis, just as to see if there's any correlation as to implementing healthier foods can lead to a weight change, but it's not a requirement that they need a new, lose X amount of pounds. It's just a way as uh, for us to, what's the word I'm looking for? Just to see if there's any correlation with those two with diet and with um, healthier lifestyle changes. But by no means we want to enforce a, a particular outcome because then that makes it a little bit deterrent to the participants of the program. And in terms of the glucose levels that you discussed earlier, we, that's a new idea that we actually want to implement. We, ha- we are planning to include more biometrics because we understand that the body is a very complex process and weight is just a very superficial way of seeing how healthy someone is and we want to make sure that we are tackling certain internal things that are going on that aren't as readily visible as weight
2: Well, thank you, Sochi Garcia, for coming on to tell us about the wellness program at Gather New Haven, your assistant program manager there. Uh, Sochi, thank you. Thank you. This is where we live. Today's show produced by Sujatra Srinivasan. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Special thanks to Robin Doyne Aitken. I'm Lucy Nalpathanshul. We hope you have a great weekend.